are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Welcome to our Thursday, well, afternoon when I'm in California, uh, but here uh, I am on the 14th, I guess, in between the 14th and the 15th decks of the cruise ship Celebrity Apex, and we are in the midst of an enduring word cruise, a Mediterranean cruise. We've got a group of about 120 people, and we've come here to the Mediterranean to visit places that we want to see. We started in Athens, and then the next day we were going to sail uh, after a sea day. We were going to dock in Haifa and take the group in to see Galilee. Then we were going to come down and dock at Ashdod and take the group for two days into Jerusalem. All that got changed, didn't it? On our way to Haifa, we found out, uh, of course, watching the news just like everybody else, about the terrible crimes that Hamas from the Gaza Strip had perpetrated, had practiced, had carried out against Israel, really launching uh, a new phase in their ongoing warfare against Israel. And I say a new phase because uh, Hamas in Gaza has been firing rockets and digging tunnels and trying to take prisoners and, and hostages for many, many years. That's nothing really new that's, that's been happening for many years. But obviously what we saw on last, what day was it, Chuck? Was it Sunday? On Sunday was something uh, remarkably different. So we've got 120 people on the midst of a cruise ship that has a couple thousand people on it. And uh, we were all very disappointed, obviously. We're quite disappointed that we weren't going to be able to visit the places in Israel that we planned to visit. <clears throat> and then uh, the plan after our three days in Israel, we were going to go to Alexandria, Egypt for two days. That got canceled as well because of uh, a very dramatic murder of, I, I heard it was a murder of two. Was it two or four? Okay, I, I guess it was four people um, tourists who were murdered on or near a bus in Alexandria, and they were murdered by a policeman, by an Egyptian policeman. So obviously that uh, complicated made it difficult. In the midst of this, obviously our tour group has been disappointed, but at the same time, what can you do? We're visiting a volatile part of the world that I have visited many, many times Yet I've never, um, look, I, I've been in Israel when some dramatic incidents have happened before, some dramatic shootings have happened, uh, murders of Israeli civilians uh, by uh, Arabs uh, in Jerusalem. It's happened before when I was there, other kind of things of world unrest. <clears throat> I've always been quite um, satisfied with the security arrangements for any one of the groups that we've had when we've gone to Israel. And part of it is, is because I know that they would be very willing to cancel such a trip if that should happen, as has happened here. I have to say our group, though obviously we're disappointed, yet the group is very much in high spirits. And because of some rescheduling of stops and such, we anticipate that uh, tomorrow we're gonna be on the island of Santorini, but then we're gonna go to the port of uh, Bodrum and from there, we're going to go to Miletus as a group, where the Apostle Paul was with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Then we're going to go to, I forget what the name of the port is, Casa, whatever. But we're going to visit the city of Ephesus on our final day of the tour. But I know there's many people been praying for us on this trip, and I'm grateful for your prayers. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, like I say, the group is admittedly disappointed, but yet I think taking it, in, um, in good cheer, if I could say that, and just trying to make the, the best of the situation. These dramatic attacks, uh, unprecedented in the last several decades against Israel by Hamas, 
has led many people to take a look at the situation there and say this is indicative of steps towards a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. For example, uh, well, I always like to point out when we talk about biblical prophecy that there are Christians from different traditions, different interpretive approaches who see things differently, and, and that's fine. Uh, I, I don't want to act as if all of Christianity, uh, especially all Christianity through the centuries, has agreed on the things that I understand biblical prophecy through. Yet, yet nevertheless, um, I, I do think that there is a biblical understanding and that it's just not all hopelessly vague with nothing to say about it. I believe that God very much has an enduring role for the Jewish people and therefore the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is a Jewish nation gathered now in unbelief but I don't think that there's any doubt biblically that God is not finished with the Jewish people and has an important role for them in his unfolding plan of the ages there are some people who would adamantly say that God is finished with Israel that after they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, which may I point out, not all Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The early uh, generation, the early generation of the church was predominantly Jewish. But the Jewish leadership at the time definitely rejected Jesus as Messiah because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah during his lifetime and then in the generation following, God brought his judgment upon the Jewish people. This is what they would say upon the Jewish people culminating in the Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And they would say, since then, God is finished with Israel in his plan of the ages. And now the church has replaced, or they would say that the church fulfills the role of Israel in God's unfolding plan of the ages. Friends, I disagree with that strongly. And I believe that, that there's many reasons biblically to disagree with that. But let me give you one of the most straightforward re reasons. I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 35. And one of the things that's amazing about this passage is that it's hard to think of... Well, let me put it this way. If God wanted to express that he would never give up on Israel that they would always have a role in his unfolding plan of the ages. It's hard to think of how God could put it any stronger than what he says here in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 35. Let me read this to you. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's, that's a pretty dramatic opening, don't you think? That's verse 35 of Jeremiah 31. Now here's verse 36. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Friends, I don't believe you can find a stronger statement in the Bible of God vowing. And by the way, let's understand, vowing in the context of Israel's great rebellion, the rebellion that would culminate, and in the context of Jeremiah had culminated in the Babylonian exile, God still says, I will never, ever, ever give up on Israel. They will always be a people before me. And Jesus said it so plainly that Israel must welcome him as Messiah in his second coming. He looked over Jerusalem and he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That means that there has to endure a Jewish people to the end to welcome their Savior. And the many passages that speak of uh, Israel returning to God, recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, 
friends, that is absolutely to be fulfilled. And for somebody to say that the Jewish people have no more place in God's unfolding prophetic plan than the Italian people or the Polish people or the Swedish people or the whatever people you want to sign, it's just wrong. The Jewish people have a special place in God's unfolding plan of the ages. Their special place, their chosenness is not being chosen to salvation apart from Jesus Christ. No, Judaism is not a separate way to salvation apart from Jesus. No. But they are chosen to have this critical role in God's unfolding plan. And so I I don't get these people who say that God is finished with Israel and they, they no longer have any place in his plan. I don't get it. Uh, but that's it for that little idea. Listen, this turmoil of nations, how this all ends up, is very grieving. It's very problematic. But it fits in with what the Bible says will happen in the end. One more thing. I've read reports, and listen, you read a lot of things. I, I try not to put excessive confidence in anything, but I'll, I'll just share with you reports that I've read that one of the things that Hamas and other people have declared to be one of the causes of their uh, striking out against Israel, and and by no means, I don't want to think for a moment that this is the only cause, but I, I just think it's one of several, is that they believe that Israel's dedicated to building a third temple. I believe that the Bible says that that temple's going to be built. Now, we need to clarify as believers We're not applauding the building of that temple. There is no valid resumption of the sacrificial system. It's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But recognizing that it's going to happen and having a a sense of awe at seeing things working towards its fulfillment, that's not the same as approving of it happening at all. Um it's going to happen. I I don't know when. I I think that that it could come sooner rather than later, for sure. But um, we as Christians, we don't champion the idea of this third temple, but we just recognize simply that the Bible says it's going to happen. And we do have a bit of awe when we see these unlikely things being worked towards. All right, Chuck, that's enough from me. All right, let me go on. Do we, do we have any questions from some of the people here just sitting around and listening here before we go to the questions in the live chat? No. Okay, should I just hit the questions in the live chat? I guess we're coming through okay, Chuck, aren't we? I'm following the Okay. My good friend Chuck Musselwhite is right here helping me, and I'm going to read the questions from his phone. Uh, Larson asks the question, is Cain dead? Uh, yeah, Larson, Cain is dead. Look, I, I know that there's some people, uh, maybe there's something in the Genesis text uh, that I'll wander from a man around the face of the earth and people think that Cain is still wandering somewhere. But really, that's a very unusual way to approach the text. Uh, Cain wandered the earth during the days of his life. There's absolutely nothing to believe. In matter of fact, quite the opposite. Since Cain was a sinner, I think we can all agree on that, right? That's not out there. Cain was a sinner, Sinners are subject to death. And being a sinner, he was subject to death. That's very plain from the book of Romans. It is great. I got like everybody, they're like nodding their heads. It's helping me around. It's like cheering me on in this. I don't usually have that. Usually I'm doing this all alone in my office here and nobody to kind of nod their head and, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. Okay, so yes, Cain's dead. And and whatever people have kind of spun out of that, they're forgetting that basic principle. Cain was a sinner and sinners are subject to death. Okay, next question comes from Barry. How do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what things are added unto us? Barry, what a great question. Thank you for that question. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Look, I'm old enough to when I was a young Christian, 
there was a popular worship chorus that was going out, seek first the kingdom of God. Um, and it was really just a repetition of that verse in a melodic way, written by a woman named Karen Lafferty. And I remember being together with other believers in church and singing that, and they would sing that song in rounds. And, and not because it was a song that we would sing together. Chuck, you're not old enough to remember that, are you? <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the Seeky first, the, oh, that yeah. song? Okay, okay. Okay. So, not only because we would sing it together, but God just really spoke to me powerfully as a young believer through that verse that um, if he, here's what that verse means to seek first the kingdom of God is just to give God and his things priority in your life. There's a. a a ethic. There's an approach to the kingdom of God. Really, the, the best summary statement of what the kingdom of God is like, you can find in the Sermon on the Mount. That statement from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the ethics, the approach, the, uh, the philosophy of the kingdom of God is really expressed well in the Sermon on the Mount. But you can't restrict it only to the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's all the scriptures. How God tells us to live, that's what's seeking his kids. It's like, Lord, I want to live out the values of your kingdom, the ethics. I want to live that out in my life here and now, here today. Now, what are these other things that will be added unto us? <clears throat> well, if you remember, in the passage right before that, and Chuck, you can correct me on this, or so I'm not, not wrong. <clears throat> Just before that, Jesus <clears throat> warned people that they should not worry as the Gentiles worry about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, where they're going to go tomorrow. They should not worry as the pagans worry because they have a father in heaven who's going to take care of them. Instead of worrying, they need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those other things will be added unto them. <clears throat> That's really it. God will take care of our needs. If we prioritize God, he'll make sure that the other needs are met. And I think that's just really a very simple way to understand that. Thank you for that question there, Barry. <coughs> Excuse me, Chuck, what do we got next here from Chris? Could you please explain how you would interpret Romans eleven twenty six, where Paul says, all Israel will be saved? Okay, uh, here's the verse uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. So all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. It was Chris. That passage from Romans 11 is one of the strongest, clearest, most direct statements in the New Testament, that God is not finished with the Jewish people and by extension with the nation of Israel because we know that there are many more Jews today in the world than live in the uh, nation of Israel. Doesn't the Israel contain about half the world's Jewish population? I, I think that's it, uh, approximately that. Any other feedback out here in the peanut gallery? You guys don't know. I don't know. I think it's about half the, the world's Jewish population lives in Israel. But God is not finished with them in his redemptive plan. And one of the things that God promises that happened is the Jewish people will come and trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. <clears throat> they will become a Messiah accepting people instead of a Messiah rejecting people. Even as it's prophesied in Zechariah, I think it is, that in the end, when Jesus comes and returns, um, he will show them his wounds and they will be reconciled to him. They will ask him, where did you receive those wounds? And he said, I received these in the house of my friends. And there's going to be this, this wonderful trusting. And it says all Israel will be saved. I, I don't think that that necessarily means every last person of Jewish descent on the earth will trust in Jesus as their Messiah. But it will be a vast work uh, among the vast majority of Judaism that they will trust in Jesus. They will be a Jesus-accepting people, a Messiah-accepting people, and they will salvation, find salvation. 
<clears throat> that will happen before the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ, even as he said in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24 or 25, you will not see me until you say again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus came the first time, his own people rejected him. Largely, not all of them, of course. The original disciples were all Jewish. And the original church, the, everybody who was saved on Pentecost, all 3,000 and 5,000 members of the church in those early uh, years in Jerusalem, they were all Jewish. But uh, that work will be extended throughout all the people of Israel, although, as I said before, not necessarily literally all, but the vast, vast majority. And again, this is one of the clear passages that tells us <clears throat> that God is not finished with the Jewish people. Now, there are some people who say that the church replaces Israel, or sometimes they'll say the church fulfills Israel, or sometimes they'll pull Chuck. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's one of these things that they call a Jesus juke almost. No, no, Jesus fulfills Israel. Listen, that approach, those approach make no sense whatsoever with Romans chapter 11. Because Paul says this is a mystery. And if Israel is just a way of referring to all the people of God today, it is zero mystery that that Israel is saved. Behold, I tell you a mystery. All Christians are saved. There's no mystery to that. But there's a tremendous redemptive mystery in the fact that God is going to bring salvation to the nation that has largely and persistently rejected him. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So um, <clears throat> this is one of these verses that in my mind makes it so clear. Now, let, let me say this. <clears throat> that... We cannot deny, and I'm not trying to deny, the valid concept of spiritual Israel. And I would say that I, as a believing Gentile, I'm part of believing Israel. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 makes that very plain, and, and so do other passages. That, that there is the concept of spiritual Israel. And, and I would say it's better to be a member of spiritual Israel than it is to be a member of national Israel. Because... Being a member of spiritual Israel means you're saved. Okay, so we're not, we're not denying that. We're the wild olive branches. That's right. We're the wild olive branches that are grafted in, to use that imagery of Paul from, from Romans. But, but, the mistake... <clears throat> All right, looks like we might have had a connection problem here. Um, I'm just going to keep on going. Uh, moderator, if for some reason there's no... Po moderator, I'm going to keep on going until you tell us to stop. Okay, I think we're back. So we may go in and out. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a cruise ship. We're in the middle of the Mediterranean. And didn't we look on the map? We're not really near any land either. We're doing this on the Wi-Fi that the ship provides. We may cut in and out. Uh, but I thought it would be better to do this than do a pre-recorded show. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but I'm not going to quit until the moderator tells me to. So moderator... If there's no point, in, I'm just going to keep babbling on, even if we're not going on. Okay, the question was about Job. And if the book of Job, thank you for your question, Adonis. If the book of Job foreshadows the incarnation of Jesus. Well, first of all, let me say, Adonis, I have never thought of it in those terms before. Even though there are some fascinatingly Christological passages in the book of Job. I think of one passage, I, I should know it, chapter and verse, where um, Job describes his humiliation and then his ultimate glorification. To me, that speaks very powerfully as a prefiguring of Jesus. But I think that it could be taken as an illustration of that. <clears throat> There's ways I look at things, Adonis, and I, I, I don't know. Look, I'll just tell you how I see it. This is my question and answer show. I can say how I see things, can't I? You guys aren't going to tackle me and turn me back? Well, Chuck could. Anyway, all right. <clears throat> I think that there <clears throat> are some things in the Scripture that clearly speak of Jesus Christ in a prophetic or foreshadowing way. Right? There's no doubt about it. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, 
the promise of the deliverer in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, these are just clear, incontrovertible references. A scepter shall arise to Jacob. Okay, we could go on and on. There are many clear and obvious prophetic passages. But then there are other passages that I don't think they're necessarily prophetic passages clearly announcing, but they illustrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And Adonis, I would say I have no problem taking the flow of the book of Job as an illustration of the um, previous, the pre-incarnation suffering, the incarnation of Jesus, the suffering Job endured, misunderstanding of men that he endured, and then, and then his ultimate glorification. <clears throat> what you don't see much of in Job, Job's um, standing in the place of others for salvation. But again, we're not trying to say that Job illustrates every aspect of Jesus's ministry, but says that there's some definite aspects. So instead of looking at Job as a prophecy of Jesus, Adonis, you've really kind of stoked my interest in looking at Job as an illustration of, and I feel completely comfortable talking about that. Adonis, thank you. You've, uh, You've shown me something new today, and I love, I love learning new things. Thank you for that. Okay, next question comes from... Sarada. Sarada. Oh, a new question came in. It just moved out. I got it. Sarada asked this question. Hello, Pastor. Blessings. Would you be able to help me understand Lazarus and the rich man? The man had memory of what he did on earth. This means that our memory does not go away after we are in heaven. And this seems to mean that we're going to remember our loved ones who did not want to accept Jesus as their Savior. And is this going to make us sad? How should we interpret this? All right. So, Radha, thank you. And where is that in Luke, Chuck? You know, I'm really 16, 17, something like that. I know it's in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe I should get some credit for that, just knowing it's in the Gospel of Luke. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I like to explain it that way. I believe, just as you indicated, Sarada, that it's a story, that it's not a parable. It's different from other parables that Jesus told. Notably, in no parable does Jesus give the name of any of the characters. But in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, he gives the name of the rich man. And I think Jesus is describing... Luke 16? 16? No no way. Well, I'm I'm feeling... Yeah, but I can't remember where everything is in that. Okay, Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Sarajah, I I want you to consider that the rich man who remembered his relatives was aware that they did not know God and were destined for a eternity of torment, even as the rich man was already in that eternity of torment. That's all relevant to him being in the place of torment. In other words, I don't doubt that people who face eternal torment, that one of the things that will torment them is the knowledge of their relatives coming to join them. What does that mean for people who go to heaven, not to the place of torment? I I don't think it necessarily has any relevance because one thing we can say about those who go to heaven is that they will be so consumed with what classical theologians used to call the beatific vision. Am I saying that right? I think so. The beatific vision. The the vision of God in perfection and glory. When the Bible says that we will know him as we are known, all of that put together, it's going to be this amazing, this this remarkable fulfillment of um, everything that we are. And so even though it's possible that believers may know something of that, they, we will be so consumed with the perfection of God and, may I say, the perfection of his wisdom that we will know that the judge of all the earth has done right. And even people that we love, we are confident in God's righteous 
determination of their eternal destiny. I'll tell you this, and I, I say it with all my heart, that there's going to be no one in hell, in eternal torment, that doesn't deserve to be there and isn't there according to the righteous judgment of God. It will be right for them to be there. And that's, that's what we understand, biblically speaking. Okay, thank you for that. Excuse me, I'm going to clear my throat just yeah. <coughs> one more time here. Okay, next question. This one from Flora. Uh, Flora says, um, lighthearted question, why is it when a person is introduced to a pastor, people feel obligated to call that pastor henceforth, pastor and so and so instead of their first name? He's not their pastor. Ooh, Flora, that's a good one. Okay, now, have people been calling me pastor on this trip? Sometimes, but not predominantly. Have you, thank you. I can't see you in the dark. Yes. Well, okay, who is that, though? Rick. Rick, okay, great. All, all I, I want you to know, all I can see is your shadowy faces out there, yes. All the light is on my face. It's not on your face. Uh, okay, Flora, you, you're right. It is a little bit humorous because um, I'm not Rick's pastor. Yet he kindly refers to me as pastor. Uh, some of that is just sort of a gesture of respect. It would be something like, I call people doctor, even though they're not my doctor. You know, doctor so-and-so. Um, even though they're not my doctor, it, it can be a thing of recognition. And it can be a proper form of recognition. Look, I, I've always kind of considered it this way. I certainly don't mind it if people call me Pastor David. That's a gift. That's a calling in my life. I've spent uh, 30 years plus in pastoral ministry throughout my life. And, and, and I continue in some sense, even today, even though I'm not a pastor over a congregation, I definitely think that I still have an ongoing pastoral work. However, I think it's fair. I think it's appropriate for people to call me by that name, pastor. But I never get hung up on it if they don't. I've, I've never once kind of had the attitude, um, uh, hey, they didn't call me pastor. What about that? So I, I actually think that that's a pretty good balance to have. Look, if people want to do that, I, look, I think it's wonderful and in some sense appropriate, but I also think that it's a little wrong if pastors are hung up on saying to it, as if, I, how about that, Chuck? I won't speak to you unless you address me as pastor. That would seem really weird, wouldn't it? So anyway. Yes, yes. So again, it can be just a simple show of kind of appropriate respect, I think, in that regard. Um, very good. Uh, next question. Michael. Hello, Pastor Guzik. I have a question about baptism. If I've been baptized as a Roman Catholic after converting to Bible-believing Christian, do I need to be baptized again? Thank you for your answer. Okay. Michael, <laughs> Michael, here's your question. If you were baptized as a Roman Catholic and then come to faith in Jesus Christ, should you be baptized again? I can give you a very brief answer. Yes. Now, there are some people from other Christian traditions that would be horrified at the answer that I just gave you right now. They would say, listen, um, first of all, a person shouldn't have a problem with Roman Catholic baptism. And number two, a person shouldn't have a problem with infant baptism. Sometimes we say paid baptism. Chuck, why are you giggling over there? Chuck's laughing right now. Chuck, tell the people why you're giggling. Because of paid Because Chuck knows <clears throat> that this is something of a hobby horse for me. Listen, I, I believe very strongly in credo baptism, baptism of believers. And so I have no hesitation at all to tell you that I think that people should be baptized as believers. I believe baptism is not for children if they are of an appropriate age. We're talking about infants. They don't have the capability to understand either faith or repentance. They should not be baptized. And so I'll say it, Again, I know that there's people in different Christian traditions, and look, I, I don't, I'm not condemning them. 
But I'm not going to say they're right. They're wrong. Their practice of infant baptism, pedo-baptism is wrong, and people should be baptized as believers and not just as infants. So um, I was baptized as a baby into the Roman Catholic Church. When I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was, I believe, very appropriately baptized into, uh, into the faith. And I think that that baptism was my true baptism. <clears throat> Let me say one other thing. There are also people who are very uh, offended at the idea of a Christian being baptized more than once. And so for that reason, they would say, we well, shouldn't be baptized as an adult because you were baptized as a baby. Uh, first of all, I understand why there are some Christians who are very offended at the idea of some being baptized more than once, but I don't share their offense. Um, I, I think that unless it's done to some weird extreme, that is somebody getting baptized every week or every month or something like that, or even once a year, that, that seems kind of strange. But as long as it's not done in some strange extreme, it, it can very well be seen as sort of a renewing of vows. When a couple, after being married 25 years, has a renewal of their vows, they're not denying their previous commitment. They're honoring it. And so I have no problem with somebody who wants to be baptized again, again, as long as it's not a weird thing. And this is kind of very fresh on my mind because today we just left the island of Rhodes and we went to a uh, beautiful beach. Stegna? Stegna? Stegna Beach. What a beautiful day we had out there. Man, it was good. And we had a baptism. We baptized, what, 10, 12 people? Did we get a count? Something like that. And I'm sure that some of those were re-baptisms. And again, I explained to him why I think that's okay. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Uh, that was from Michael, I think. <coughs> Pardon me. Okay, from Margaret. <coughs> Margaret. To whom did Jesus pay the ransom? To the devil. Oh, Margaret. Margaret, how many words is that question, Chuck? Maybe about 10 words? <clears throat> Margaret, in seven or eight words, you've asked one of the most complicated questions, in my mind, in Christian theology. <clears throat> Sorry for that, folks. You've asked one of the most complicated qu questions in Christian theology. To whom did Jesus pay the ransom? And the reason why it's a complicated question, and this is something that some of the scholastic theologians, those of the Middle Ages, spent a lot of time discussing. Did Jesus pay the ransom to God the Father? Or did Jesus pay the ransom to the devil? Right? That, that's usually the two sides on this. Well, the, the problem with that is that you can conjure up significant problems with either approach. You see, if you say that Jesus paid the ransom to God the Father, you say, well, what, did, did God the Father hold people in captivity? You know, was that it? Was he holding them in bondage and slavery? Or you can say that Jesus paid the ransom to the devil. You say, well, why would Jesus pay the devil anything? So it's a complicated question. I don't know if I have a good answer to it. Let me just suggest something, Margaret. So... Margaret, I'm going to freely admit that I'm going to give you a probably not fully satisfactory answer here. And I, 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 I guess I just have to do a lot more research before I could give you a categorical answer. But I think it's possible that that is simply extending the metaphor too far. That we were slaves, because that's the whole thing of a ransom or a redemption, uh, is being bought out of our slavery being ransomed out of our slavery. And the whole idea is that, <clears throat> and to say, and to have to decide to whom did he pay it, uh, not only over-literalizes that picture, because can't we agree, Jesus did not actually pay a sum of money. He paid his life. And he did lay down his life to honor God the Father, but also to defeat Satan, to plunder Satan. So I, I think that 
maybe to demand an answer to whom Jesus, to whom did Jesus pay, who Jesus paid the ransom to, right, Chuck? I mean, okay. So, Margaret, I, sorry, I, let me just be straight with you. Because I believe the Bible does not give us a satisfactory answer to this, I don't believe I can give you a satisfactory answer. Though it's fine to, to think about it, of course, to investigate it. So I'm not faulting your question, Margaret. Good question. It just shows what a sharp group we have. You know, we get a high caliber of questions among people in this Q&A. I'd like to think that we have a very high caliber, sophisticated audience. Yes, we do. Okay, Shell asks... When Nebuchadnezzar had Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the fire and saw four in there, he mentioned the Son of Man. Wait, didn't, did he say Son of Man? Good night. Um, did he say Son of Man or Son of God? Do you guys have a recollection on that? I'll have to look it up. L- look it up. In, um, that's Daniel chapter 2, right? Or 3. 2 or 3. How did he know what the Son of Man looked like? Okay, well... Great uh, question there, Shell. <clears throat> All I can say is that whatever Nebuchadnezzar saw in the fiery furnace was so radiant, so compelling that he had to say that. Shell, I'll tell you exactly what it reminds me of. It reminds me of the Roman centurion. Do you remember that the Roman centurion, when Jesus was on the cross, what did the Roman centurion say? He said, Surely this was the Son of God. Now, again, what would the Roman centurion know what the Son of God looked like? But there was just something about the situation, something about the radiance of Jesus, something about the glory of Jesus that made the centurion say what he said at the crucifixion of Jesus and made Nebuchadnezzar say what he said when he saw the four men in the fiery furnace. And obviously we believe that that fourth person in the fiery furnace with Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Son of God, God, it says there. Okay. So again, I'm going to, I don't know. There's not given some specific reason other than to say there was something about it so compelling, so radiant, so majestic. Maybe some of the great Chabad, the the great glory of God was that it just compelled centurion to look at this and say surely this is the son of god don't you find it striking bull i love it because now i can feel like i'm having a discussion with you guys Uh, don't you think like it it, it's remarkable too that both these were gentiles nebuchadnezzar obviously a gentile and the centurion at jesus crucifixion obviously a gentile yet they were able to perceive the son of god in the midst of what they saw so thank you for that question there show Okay, Ryan. Pastor David, what would your advice be to a believer in regards to talking to a believer who has been saved longer, specifically, if they think they are setting themselves up potentially to sin? Okay, I'm going to read that again, just so I understand. To a believer in regards to talking to a believer who has been saved longer, specifically, if you think they're setting themselves... Well, Ryan, if I understand your question right, you're kind of talking about a believer rebuking or correcting another believer and this other believer that you want to rebuke or correct has been a believer longer. Well, Ryan, first of all, God bless you, but um, I, I don't think that there's an exemption. I think what that would affect is if you see a brother sinning or on a pathway to sin and you feel you see it and you feel that you would say something to them and the only reason you wouldn't say something to them is because they've been a believer longer than you, you should say it to them. The fact that they've been a believer longer to you should definitely affect how you deliver the message to them, but I don't think it should affect whether or not you deliver the message to them. I hope that makes sense to you. So yes, you need to do it the way that the Bible tells us to do. If any man sees another overtaken in a fault, let him restore him with gentleness, considering that you yourself may also fall. That's a very uh, biblical way for us to approach other people and to speak to them, recognizing our own sinfulness and our own... So we need to do it in a spirit of humility. But Ryan, I would say do it. The great one another's in the New Testament, love one another, forgive one another, be long-suffering to one another, 
admonish one another, correct one another, rebuke one another. Those don't say, well, except if he's been a believer a lot longer than you. So it could change the manner in which you do it. You, you would seek to be more honoring, more respectful, but I don't think it should ref, uh, affect whether or not you would do it. Thank you for that question there, Ryan. Okay, before we get on to the next question, I do just want to say again, we're on a cruise ship. We are in a cruise ship in the Mediterranean. We're on our way from the island of Rhodes. We're on our way to the island of Santorini. And we were supposed to have three days in Israel, two days in Alexandria, Egypt, and all those got canceled. Now, we're fine. We've got some people. Did you guys get some people texting you from home that they were worried and such? Look, we're fine. We're on a floating resort, for heaven's sakes. We're fine. Um, There's no sense of danger for us. Our group has been, yeah, we're, yeah, that's the, the danger is all the food we've been eating. So there's disappointment, obviously, that we have been able to visit the places that we intended to and planned to. Uh, but at the same time, we've been grateful to God uh, for the, the warm fellowship, for the things we have been able to do, uh, for the meetings that we've been able to get together. Because most days that we've been able to get together, we've been able to have meetings together as a group. Those have been a great blessing. So, all right, what do we got? Okay, from Dusanka. Think that Dusanka. I think that's how you say the name, Dusanka. Since we have read that the whole Scripture is God breathed, what are we to make of passages in First Corinthians where Paul says, "I I say not Christ." Thank you. God bless you. Okay, Dusanka. Thank you. Great question. There are a few places in the Bible, just as you're relating, where Paul writes things and says, well, I say this, not the Lord. All he's saying is that we don't have a direct command from Jesus on this, but I'm saying this to you as an apostle of God. It's no less inspired in God's plan, in God's uh, uh, path. So it's no less inspired at all. It just means that Paul is not relying on a statement that Jesus himself made about that issue. Rather, the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given him, apostle of the Lord. So it's really just that simple. Uh, I don't know if some of you guys have Bibles. I've got Bibles like this. They're red letter Bibles. And in those Bibles, the words of Jesus are indicated in red in the Bible. Look, I don't think there's any harm in having a red letter Bible. But there is harm in thinking that the words of Jesus are more inspired than other words in the Bible. No, the biblical understanding of the inspiration of the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit has inspired all the scriptures, not just the words that Jesus uh, directly spoke and were recorded by the gospel writers. So thank you for that, Tisanka. Christina Christina. Nathan highlighted this one. Okay, Christina. Help. I'm asked to lead, but I'm not ready at all. I'm the youngest believer, but one of the oldest in literal age. I'm tired of being pushed to take a role due to my age. Biblical advice on age expectations are being pushed into ministry. Wow, Christina. Thank you for your question. God bless you, dear. Okay, so let me see if I understand the situation right. You're with a group of believers, you're in a community of believers, and you are not as old as them as a believer, but you're older in age. And you feel like they're pushing you into service that you don't feel called to. Okay, Christina, look, I gotta say, I don't think you should do it. I I don't think people should do ministry that they don't feel called to. Now, I, I, I would divide into two types of ministry. I think that there is occasional or spur of the moment, maybe we could say spontaneous ministry. And that, look, if there's a need, we should fill it. It, I'll use an illustration, Christine, I'm trying to apply this applies to your situation, but just to use an analogy. Look, uh, if you're committed to a church family, you're part of the church, and you walk into the church on a Sunday, and, and somebody from the Sunday school department says, oh, we really need somebody to help out in the nursery, can you please help us? And and barring some reason that you might have, you should say, I'm going to help. I'm going to jump in there and do it. And you don't have to say, 
Oh, no, let me pray for a half hour about it and see if I'm called about this. That's kind of spur of the moment spontaneous need. Yes, jump in there and help. But you should not take on the role of regularly helping out in the nursery or something else unless you have prayed about it and really feel that there could be a call of God. And I'm not saying that you have to feel certain about a call of God, but you just at least feel that there legitimately really could be a call of God in it. And so I would just make, so Christina, I don't think this has so much to do with your age, but I would say this to any believer. I don't think this has to do with your age as a believer or your age, you know, just your life age. This more has to do with the whole issue of calling. And listen, sometimes well-meaning Christians will try to push us into a ministry where we haven't really been called, but I think we just shouldn't do it. And you can just say this, dear brother, dear sister, would you pray for me that I should feel called? Because if I feel called, I'll do it. But if I don't feel called, I'm not going to do it. That's okay to do. Thank you for that one, Christina. What do we got next? Bob. Bob. <clears throat> Pastor Guzik, do you believe that more Jews will be saved, that Jews will be saved more than the 144,000 in the end? Bob, I can give a very quick answer to your question. Yes. Those 144,000 will be just a first fruits of a greater harvest to come. God has a unique role for that 144,000, but... Um, uh, that does not limit the Jews that will be saved at the end. So let me go back up here. Um, Ryan, you know what he did, Chuck? He gave me a lightning round. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. Gave me a lightning round. My moderator's brutal. <laughs> the, you know, here I am. I'm kind of tired. My voice is a little weak. He, he throws, it, throws the lightning round at me. Okay, but I got a couple questions to answer before the lightning round. Ryan asked this question. Also, Pastor David, what are your thoughts on the Billy Graham rule? Should a Christian be alone with the opposite sex if the person is not their spouse or girlfriend? <clears throat> well, let's just say this, mom or sister or something like that. Um, Ryan, I, I agree. I agree. Now, look, I I I'm not saying that, that there's absolutely no exception. You can take any rule and be a legalistic jerk about it, Okay. But as a general principle, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no reason for me to counsel a woman one-on-one. -on -one. First of all, my wife, praise the Lord, is a much better counselor than I am, period. And uh, she would be able to connect with and have greater insight into that woman's needs. Um, but even with that social, I, I don't think I should be going out to dinner with with women, even just in a friendship sense or things like that. So um, again, allowing that there's anything that can be legalistically and stupidly applied, um, accepting that, yes, the general principle, I agree with it. Thank you for that, Ryan. Um, okay, here's the lightning round. I'm just going to hold on to the thing, Chuck. Okay, here we go, lightning round. Uh, Shell asks, one more question. Why do you travel during these troubled times? I worry about you. Well, Shell, okay. Thank you for your concern, Shell. But honestly, we scheduled this two years ago. We didn't know it was going to be troubled two years ago. So, yeah, we didn't know it was going to be troubled. We didn't know it was going to be troubled the day before. We were surprised as anybody. So, listen, if we're three days in Israel and our two days in Egypt we canceled... Uh, we just didn't know. So you got to plan these things. But Shell, thank you for your concern and your prayers. Okay, next one from Anthony, who asks, one of my questions is concerning the book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Do you think that he believed in purgatory? I stumbled at reading the book and seeing the ideas of purgatory entertained. Anthony, yes, C.S. Lewis did believe in purgatory. And yes, he was wrong about that. Listen, I just have zero problem with saying C.S. Lewis was a great man, a great communicator of many biblical truths, but he didn't have everything right. And on that particular point, he just seems to have accepted his Anglican theology instead of, I think, a biblical theology. So, yeah, Anthony, let me say, you're, you're perceiving it correctly. You're, you're spot on in your perception. C.S. Lewis did believe in purgatory, uh, but he was incorrect in that. It's something that does not have a biblical basis for it. 
Uh, next question comes from Tunnel Banan Shugotre. That's Tunnel Banan, that's Subway. Tunnel Banan needs Subway uh, 23. Subway 23 in that. And you say it in Swedish, Tunnel Banan Shugotre. Okay, yeah, okay. His question is, hello from Sweden. Does my mother's cousin blaspheme the Holy Ghost when he calls himself a Christian but mocks everyone who truly believes in Jesus Christ's resurrection? Let me just say, I can't say with certainty that he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but I would certainly say that he's dishonoring God and he's certainly edging towards that um, very terrible thing. Um, he calls himself a Christian, but he mocks the idea of the resurrection. Um, he's rejecting Jesus Christ. Whatever Jesus he accepts is not the Jesus of the Bible. And only the Jesus of the Bible can save. The Jesus of the Bible rose from the dead. There's no doubt about that. So I hope that's helpful for you. Thank you for the question. Flora asked this question. We know the nation of Jacob culminated to the Jewish nation. What nation came out of Ishmael? Well, Flora, many nations came out of Ishmael. Ishmael was the ancestor of the Arabic peoples. And the, <clears throat> and the Arabic peoples, not only in their origin in Saudi Arabia, but their spread across um, uh, what we would today call the Middle East. He's the father of many peoples, but you would just say he's the father of the Arabian peoples, Ishmael. And there are many nations that have descended from Ishmael. So thank you for that question. Man, we're blazing through this lightning round. I tell you, it's, it's on fire. Okay, um, he is returning soon. I love your screen name. What is the place of a standalone prophetic ministry in the community that focuses on experiences of God? Um, to me, that sounds like ministry that's unaccountable to the leadership of the church. Look, um, I'm a pastor, I'm a leader, I have 30 plus years of pastoral experience, I've run a Bible college, I've got a commentary on the whole Bible, and I attend a church and submit to a pastor. Pastor Tommy Schneider of Calvary Chapel Santa Barbara is my pastor, and I submit to him as my pastor. I think it's important for people to be able to submit to their church leadership. Now look, obviously, just like in every biblical command regarding submission, God never commands absolute submission on a human level. So if my pastor told me to sin, I wouldn't do it. But other than that, I treat my pastor with a lot of respect. Now that's not difficult to do because he's a godly man. I treat him with respect. I'd submit to him. If he told me not to do something, I would, I would regard it very, very highly. And I would submit to my pastor and show him the respect. What you're kind of talking about here, he is returning soon, kind of sounds like a person who doesn't feel like they need to submit to the leadership of the church. And I just think that that's out of order. God commands people to submit in different spheres or areas of life and ministry. Um, children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Um, believers are to submit to their government. Uh, employees are to submit to their employers. And the church community is to submit to the God-appointed leadership of the church. None of those are absolute. We honor God for general understanding of those spheres. And it looks like now our final question. I'm glad to hear from our moderator that the stream quality is holding out well. I regard this as a little bit of a miracle that we've been able to do this from a cruise ship. So last question from Mick Italia. After the flood, all the people started in the same place from Noah, but the continents already moved. How did the people move to the other continents? Okay, well, uh, Mick Italia, I think that's the name there. The only difficulty there is how did they get from Asia to North America? 
And I just think that there were certain times in ancient history when there was a passable land bridge between the two places, just having to do with different climate conditions. That, that, because once people could come from Asia to North America, then they could filter down through North America, then Central America, and then South America. And people could go to Australia on boats. Um, the Polynesians were famed for being able to cross long distances uh, uh, in their boats. So really, it's, I don't think it's that complicated, uh, but it was just through that land bridge that existed between Asia and North America, up around Alaska, the Bering Strait, and then, of course, with Australia. That's simply how I would explain it. All right, that looks to be it for today. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for showing up. I say everybody. Look, there's three people out here. I, I'm not trying to, I don't want to exact. Yeah, I'm speaking to a vast crowd. of. No, there's three blessed people here. And um, two people figured they should go and get their sleep. I think I'm going to go, and I might have a piece of pizza, Chuck. Go. I'm going to check that out. We're on a cruise. There's a buffet going on all the time. Yeah. Why not? Uh, so thank you, moderator. Thank you, everybody. Uh, listen, please, if you could pray, uh, pray that we'd be able to get in these two days in Turkey coming up. Uh, there's actually been a little bit of question whether or not that's going to happen. And right now, it looks good. But I, I don't mind you praying that we'd be able to have these two days in Turkey. Uh, but, um, God willing, I'll be with you back from the West Coast of the United States next week. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, moderator, for your great work. You know who you are. And um, thanks for joining us from the Celebrity Apex somewhere in the Mediterranean. I guess we're in the Aegean Sea, aren't we? I think so. Fair enough. In the Mediterranean, thanks for joining us. All right, everybody, God bless you. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.